Okay, everybody, if you can make it back to your seats. <laughs> We're going to start in just a minute. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here this morning. Also love to see you guys shaking hands and giving hugs and laughing and being a community together. It's so nice. So this morning, I want to I wanna talk a little bit about our brothers and sisters in China. China has one of the largest underground Christian populations in the entire world. Scholars estimate that including house churches, there are roughly 96 million Christians in China. That's almost 7% of China's population, which is on, on par with Communist Party membership. But being a Christian in China is not for the faint-hearted. It is a huge risk to convert to Christianity in China. Church attendance is strictly monitored via sophisticated surveillance, and many churches are being closed down when their numbers begin to rise. It is currently illegal for under-18s 18, under to even attend church in China. All meeting venues were forced to close during the COVID-19 pandemic, as they did here, uh, but some churches were forced to remain closed once restrictions began to lift, and they were quietly phased out. The old idea that churches would only be perceived as a threat if they became too large, too political, or invited foreign guests is now an unreliable guideline. It's not uncommon for Christian leaders to be the main target of government surveillance. And some pastors have even been abducted only to appear months later in a kind of house arrest where they get re-educated into the communist agenda. If anyone converts to Christianity, from Islam or Tibetan Buddhism, their family and community will usually threaten or abuse them. Husbands may be pressured to divorce their newly converted wife in order to, to, to persuade them to come back to an acceptable religion. Christians who leave Buddhism to follow Jesus are sometimes pelted with rocks and attacked by angry Buddhists. Some have even had their homes destroyed and their governmental benefits revoked. Neighbors are expected to report any Christian activities to the authorities who then take action to stop believers from meeting together. In a country where Christianity is forbidden and is aggressively persecuted by the communist government, where is this growth coming from? God is moving in China in a powerful way. Believers are being added daily. Despite heavy persecution, one Chinese pastor recently commented, we believers are stronger than before. The more they want to pull down the banner of Christ, the higher it flies. The country of China is poised to overtake the U.S. as the world's largest Christian nation, according to one estimate. Growth like this is a sign of health. Healthy churches grow just as healthy plants grow with the correct ingredients. Nutrients, light, Food, water, good soil, they're all uh, ingredients that, that help uh, healthy plants grow. But in the same way, churches need ingredients to grow. And one of the most unexpected ingredients 
for healthy church growth can be a fair amount of persecution. Persecution purifies believers and makes them appreciate the value of their faith. As the pastor I quoted earlier illustrates, the more a church is persecuted, the more its members rise up as a testimony to the steadfastness of Christ. First century Christians were no strangers to persecution and suffering. The same thing happened to the church in Asia Minor, to whom Peter wrote this letter. The persecution of the early church caused an explosion of growth that spread throughout all of the regions. Now, most scholars would agree that Peter is writing to mostly Gentile Christians who were scattered in various Roman provinces in the area which is now considered modern-day Turkey. First-century Christians were undergoing persecution for their faith, and Peter is writing to encourage them to endure suffering patiently while still practicing their faith. 1 Peter is essentially a handbook of conduct for Christians' ambassadors to a hostile world. Peter knew that persecution against believers would only continue, so he gives them guidelines for believers to follow so that they could bring honor to the one that they represented to the world. 1 Peter isn't just a guidebook for first century believers, though. Peter's letter is just as applicable today <clears throat> as the church around the world suffers increased scorn and persecution for their faith. As you well know, it isn't popular in today's world to hold biblical values. Society is becoming more and more intolerant of, bi of biblical Christian ideals. More and more, the world is beginning to look like what Paul described in his letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. I'll read it. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. As I stated in my illustration about China, clearly persecution of Christians is not just a relic of the past. It is happening today and the Bible tells us it will only get worse. So how are Christians meant to act and respond to persecution and suffering? That's the question we'll address today. Let's look at what Peter has to say in chapter four, verses one through six. <clears throat> Excuse me. <coughs> in verse one, Peter starts with therefore. And as the saying goes, if there is a therefore, we need to see what it is there for. So here, Peter is tying together chapter 4 with his thoughts in the previous chapter about Christ's suffering and applying the principles of patient endurance during unjust suffering. In 1 Peter 3, 17 and 18, Peter explained that Christ had suffered and died for sins once for all, and that believers should be ready to suffer also. In 3, 17... Peter explains that if they had to suffer, it should be for doing good and not for evil, to be a good witness to unbelievers. Then in verse 1 of chapter 4, Peter expands on why a believer ought to be ready to suffer as Christ suffered. It's not only to be a good witness, uh, but it's also to stay away from sin. Verse 1, we can read it together, goes on to say, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, 
Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The term arm yourselves is a military metaphor. The word translated as arm yourselves referred to a soldier putting on armor. The same, with the same determination and care with which a soldier adorns himself with armor for battle, a believer should adopt Christ's attitude toward persecution, which is an unswerving resolve to do God's will regardless of the consequences. Here, identification with Christ, arming yourself with his attitude means also sharing in his suffering and his death. So why does Peter encourage us to adopt Christ's attitude toward suffering? Verse 1 goes on to say that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What does Peter mean here about ceasing from sin? I mean, surely we, we all know that sin will be a constant battle until we reach eternity. We live in a fallen world, after all. But Peter is saying that being identified with Christ demonstrates a believer's break with a sinful life. As it says in Romans 6, 6 through 7, we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. When we are baptized, we symbolize our death and burial with Christ when we are submerged in the water. And then when we rise from the waters of baptism as Christ rose from the grave, we are alive with Christ and no longer a slave to the sinful patterns of this world. Yes, we will still struggle. Yes, each day is a battle to choose to do good rather than evil. But through Christ's defeat of sin and death, we have the power to break those chains of sin in our life with the help of the Holy Spirit. We are legally free from the penalty of sin because Christ paid our debt. I'd also like to point out that suffering can be helpful in avoiding sin. Our suffering can help us to stop sinning and enter more fully into a life of service to God. While Christ's suffering made him victorious over Satan, suffering in the life of a believer can strengthen our faith and solidify our obedient lifestyle. Here's a quick example. Maybe not quick, but it's an example. When I was in my early 20s, I was in a, a Christian band that used to perform at churches, festivals, clubs, and other events around Southern California in the United States. The drummer of that band was a good friend from high school who was a fellow Christian. After the band broke up, we drifted apart and we kind of lost track of each other for a few years. Then out of the blue, he calls me and we uh, reconnected. But in those few years since we last saw each other, he had walked away from his faith and he now considered himself an atheist. Naturally, we, we started to discuss our differences in belief. But unfortunately, he was angry at God angry at Christians, angry at churches. And he took out that abusive hate on me. He started to send me harsh and slanderous emails about my faith, which got rather personal and insulting. I tried my best to love him and answer his objections with grace and poise, but it was difficult. I was completely unprepared to defend my faith in this way, and I found it difficult 
to refute his objections. Excuse me. <clears throat> and I'll be honest, his, his venomous words against me made me angry. My wife can attest to this. I was a wreck for a few months as I was dealing with his hateful persecution of me and my faith. Finally, I said, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to take all of your emails and I'm going to answer each objection individually after taking time to pray and research and intelligently form my answers. And he agreed, and so I did just that. I went to the Christian bookstore. I went to the library. I worked at a Christian university, so I went to their library, and I got every book on apologetics that I could get my hands on. And I spent weeks doing research, reading, forming my thoughts into coherent responses. After a few weeks of writing my response to him, which was upwards of 40 pages when I was done with it, I emailed it to him. Within a couple of minutes, he responded back with more insults and slander. I'm not convinced he took the time to even thoughtfully read my responses. He was not open to hearing the truth. Now you think, after all of that, I would be discouraged that I had just spent so much time reading and researching only to have him ignore it all and push it right back to me. But actually, I was encouraged. This time of persecution caused me to grow exponentially in my faith. And my knowledge of the Bible and apologetics increased by huge strides. It kindled a fire within me that caused me to go deeper and be more obedient to God in my daily life. As Peter explained here in verse 1, suffering and persecution helped me to strengthen and solidify my faith. The American evangelist uh, Billy Graham once said, the Bible clearly says that faithfulness and persecution often go hand in hand. Now let's go to verse 2, a part of this same sentence. It goes on to say that we cease from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This is the main difference between believers' lives without Christ and their new lives with Him. Before conversion, we live to satisfy ourselves and our own desires. But after conversion, we should be more concerned with living for God and not for ourselves. For the remainder of our time here on earth, a Christian's desire should be to live for the glory of God rather than to serve our own sensual appetites. Christians who have adopted Christ's mindset should count themselves dead to sin and live their lives not for evil human desires, but for the will of God. Now moving on to verse 3, it says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Some Bible translations use the word pagan here rather than Gentiles. The fact remains that this list is, uh, of sins is describing the life of a non-believer. Peter is urging believers to no longer live as they had in the past. Peter's list of evil activities resembles Paul's list from Romans 13, 13, if you remember when we went through that a few months back. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but, but are examples of things that do not please God. 
These are actions, activities, and attitudes that belong to the darkness. They have no place in a believer's life. Sensuality describes open and excessive indulgence in sexual sins. Passions or lust is sinful human desire in any form. Drunkenness obviously refers to the excessive use of wine and strong drink. Orgies were common in the Roman Empire and were often filled with all sorts of sexual promiscuity. These were often practiced in festivals associated with pagan gods. Drinking parties were riotous parties and late-night revelry. Lawless idolatry refers to idolatrous acts usually in the worship of pagan gods. These were all acts that were a part of their former lives. They'd be quite familiar with this list of activities because this was a part of their former selves. Even though the members of Peter's churches had indulged in such sins before salvation, Peter is saying that they must never do so again. This is important. Sin in the believer's life should be a burden which afflicts him rather than a pleasure which delights him. Doing the will of God must begin with putting off the old life of walking in the flesh. Such a lifestyle is contrary to the will of God. The old habits of their former life were a thing of the past. In very blunt language, Peter is saying that there needs to be a definite break from their former life and its sinful activities. In verse 4, Peter says, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same are in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. When a person becomes a Christian, sometimes his or her lifestyle can change drastically. Some of you may have experienced that in your own lives. This was especially true for the first century Christians who had come out of the morally corrupt pagan world. Some of the original readers of this letter would have been Jewish Christians, as, but as verse 3 indicates, many would have come from a pagan background. Now, we would suspect that former Jews would have presumably led a, a moral lifestyle as part of their religion, but former pagans would have been actively involved in the activities that Peter lists in this section. When this drastic change occurs in the lives of the former pagans, their friends would have been surprised and shocked that they no longer desire to partake in these sinful activities. Not only are they surprised, but then they begin to call names and, and say evil things about the new believers. This describes the reaction of people who love the darkness when they are confronted by the light. A believer's refusal to participate in an activity would be a silent condemnation of that activity. Unbelievers then react with hostility, often because they want to justify their actions or silence their own conscience. A changed life provokes hostility from those who reject the gospel. In verse 5, Peter goes on to say that they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Unbelievers who live immorally and who say evil things about Christians will one day have to face God. The verb that translates as give an account means to pay back. People who have walked in sin and who malign believers are amassing a debt to God which they will spend all eternity paying back. 
All the unsaved, alive or dead, will be brought before Jesus Christ, the judge, in the end times. Christians are supported in their stand against the ungodly life by the truth of the coming judgment. The judgment is near, and it will be universal, for it will be for all of the living and all of the dead. The fact that Peter says that God is ready to judge suggests the possibility that judgment could come suddenly and without warning. We need to be ready. In the final judgment, unbelievers, both living and dead, will have to give an account of their lives, and they will not be able to withstand the divine scrutiny on their own. Christians who have believed in Jesus can withstand the scrutiny because Jesus has taken our place and because he has accepted the judgment that we deserve. To finish this section, Peter says, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might, be, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This verse which almost seems like an afterthought from Peter, has uh, spirited a great discussion about what he means here about the gospel being preached to those who are dead. In fact, I'll be honest, when I signed up for this verse and then I read it as I was preparing my sermon, I went, why did I choose this verse to do? (laughs) So without getting into the weeds too far, the three possibilities are that the dead are those to whom Christ preached after his crucifixion, which might be alluded to in 1 Peter 3.19, the spiritually dead who are now alive, or, excuse me, or the, um, those who, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my place here for a second. Oh, the uh, Christians of Peter's churches who have already died. Now, the vast, vast majority of commentators and scholars today argue that Peter is referring to Christians in Asia Minor who heard the gospel while they were still alive and were now physically dead. And these scholars and commentators are smarter than me, so I'm going to go with their their arguments, with their conclusion. When Peter says, for this is why in this verse, he is referring to the coming judgment. This is why the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, but who heard the gospel while living. The entire point of evangelism is to inform people that someday there will be a coming judgment and then to prepare them for the day when they must give an account for how they live their life. Physical death does not exempt someone who rejects the gospel in this life from judgment. The gospel was preached and is preached because judgment is coming. This is a real event that must be acknowledged If you believe in Jesus, if you have a personal relationship with him and have recognized him as Lord of all, you don't have to be afraid of this coming judgment because Christ bought you with his own blood. You are his and you are free from condemnation. But if you are still living for the flesh, if you are still in the darkness, If you haven't allowed Jesus to rule in your heart, you will face the coming judgment and you will not be able to withstand the examination. Without Jesus, you will be found lacking. The ultimate purpose of preaching the gospel to those around you is that regardless of what happens to them in this life, they might have the opportunity to live eternally with God. This life is only a prelude to a greater and endless world beyond. 
Those who hear the gospel and respond, even if they are killed for their faith, will be vindicated before God. So how do we take these thoughts from Peter and apply them to our own life? First, if you're taking notes, it's important for us to live in light of a coming judgment day. We seem to live in a world where there is no threat of judgment. I mean, we don't like to talk about it, and therefore, many live as as if judgment, judgment doesn't exist. There's no threat of judgment in our legal system, where if you have enough money to get a good barrister, almost anyone can escape judgment. There's no threat of judgment in our society, where the moralistic worldview is to live however you want. But what makes a moral life healthy is the threat of judgment that comes from an appreciation and a healthy fear of the holiness of God. I mean, let's face it, no one wants to go to bed at night worrying about whether we'll be judged by God, but neither do we want a God who is so soft that we do not have to fear him or stand in awe of his judgment if we are living in sin. As John Stott once said, to live, work, and witness in conscious anticipation of Christ's second coming and judgment is a wholesome stimulus to faithfulness. Consequences for our behavior is an important theme for our world to learn. Peter uses the threat of judgment here to encourage his readers to live faithfully in the context of persecution. Also, it's important for us to live in light of God's impending judgment because People who are being persecuted find special comfort in knowing that God is judge because they're in the midst of unfair judgment from other humans. One day the persecuted will be vindicated before God and that brings them comfort, as it should. My second application point would be to remember uh, the example of Jesus for Christian living. If we are following him and learning to live the way he lived, then it'll be natural for us to embrace any kind of persecution with a proper, proper mindset. Jesus suffered and was persecuted, so we should expect to follow his example. Peter is encouraging his Christians here to assume the stance of Jesus as they live in an unbelieving world. Some of you may have read the book In His Steps by Charles Sheldon. The book was published in 1896, and it's a fictional story of a reverend who challenges his congregation to not do anything for a whole year without first asking, what would Jesus do? And then acting upon that answer. Then the book goes on to describe how that plays out in the lives of the fictional church's congregants. If you haven't read it, I recommend it as a thought-provoking story. Christians for centuries have been using variations of the question, what would Jesus do, as a form of imitatio Dei, or the imitation of God. A great way to put into practice what Peter is describing in this passage today is to ask ourselves, what would Jesus do in these situations? Now, Peter is focused here specifically on responding the way Jesus would respond when he was persecuted. When we suffer, when we are persecuted unjustly, It's important to put our suffering and persecution in the light of what Jesus did when he was persecuted and how he responded to it. As the commentator Scott McKnight says, Christians are to suffer 
not because suffering makes them better people, which it can do, nor because it makes them conscious of a higher world, which it can also do, but because Jesus himself suffered and they are his followers. To conclude today, I want us to remember that as we read Peter's letter, the focus on suffering is balanced with the centrality of hope within the life of a Christian. This is blended with the fact that life on earth is only temporary. Our true citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Ultimate victory lies ahead for those who trust in Jesus Christ. Even in our suffering in this temporary life, we are never alone. Christ is with us in every circumstance of life. We never need to suffer alone. He has suffered for us in the past, and he will be with us in our sufferings in the present and the future. We shouldn't be fearful of the future because Jesus has promised that he will be with us even to the end of the age. He will never leave us or forsake us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to live according to Jesus' example, both in how we live our life and, and how we face persecution and suffering. Help us to live each day in light of the coming judgment and give us an urgency to tell others about you so that they too may experience your salvation. Give us the strength to break from our former lives and to live according to your will. Thank you for the wonderful example of Jesus who came to earth to identify with our sin and who suffered in the flesh on our account so that we might be saved by faith in his sacrificial work on the cross. I pray that we may develop the same resolve to live a holy life, knowing that Jesus has not only paid for our sin, but has also broken the power of sin in our life. Father, we praise you for your grace and your mercy on us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.